is Geek Cab with your host, Dornall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back, Geek Cab, for Saturday, December 11th, 2021. Still 2021. Oh, actually, this year has gone by really, really quickly. Um, I've been very, very uh, impressed with how quickly this year has gone by. It just, it seems like 2021 decided, you know what, 2020 hung around way too long. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna kind of zip by and give people a break. And uh, I'm hoping 2022 is, uh, uh, is, is as polite a year. What do you think? Yeah, for sure. Uh, especially at the start of the year when we thought that 2020 was over and we got more of the same uh, garbage. It's been a it's been a great year in a lot of ways and a bad year in a lot of ways, and I'm glad it's over. Let's all hope. Oh yeah, for better days. 2020 was like that kid who who hangs around after the party's over, who's still drinking and still wanting to eat pizza and you know, get high and stuff and everybody's left and the host is trying to, you know, clean up all the uh, cups and trying to vacuum up all the stuff on the carpet. And he's still there trying to dance. And, and you're just like, dude, leave. Okay. It's over. I wouldn't know how that feels, but <laughs> you've never had that happen. And I, I can, I can, I can, in recent memory, I can certainly say that I've been that guy once, minus all the drinking. Oh, okay. I'm like, I've been to college. I know, I know what those guys were. Actually, the the one time I had a really big party, I was the guy who provided the pizza for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the best part is that when everybody's doing any reckoning of what's happened in the recent past, everybody has to add a year. It's like, oh, you know, I did that. I did that two years ago. Oh no, it was three years ago because of 2020. Yes, I was. We were all in prison. Oh, but I'm I, I'm excited. I'm excited because I'm glad that we got one more show in before the end of the year. Uh, as soon as the holidays come around, that's it. Oh yeah, we're we needed to make an announcement before we got to the show proper. Um, this is it for 2021. We're done after this show. Are we going to come back next year? We're coming back next year, yes. Oh, good. Oh, good. I was worried that we were canceled by our sponsors. Who are our sponsors? <laughs> we're, we're, I don't think we have any. I don't think we've ever had any. I don't recall any. Um, but yeah, as soon as 2022 comes, we, well, not as soon as, because we're not doing this yeah, there's Saturday that's going to be on Christmas Eve, and there's another Saturday that's going to be on New Year's Day. So we're not going to be back until like a week into 2022. Sounds good to me. So we'll hear you. We'll we'll be back. You'll hear us next year sometime. So I'm excited. I'm looking forward to that. That was the funny thing. We had to reschedule our gaming group last night because somebody was – just asleep? kept falling asleep. Um, we were like, oh, yeah, 2022. We'll be back then. Um, we have guests, though. We sure do. Uh, they, these, these guests patiently waiting while we talk about nothing at all. 
Um, I welcome to the show, Cedar Sanderson and Jim Curtis. Glad to have you. It's glad to be here. Nice. Now, you, you guys are, you actually actually know Daddy Warpig's here, so I'll let him do an introduction, or if you prefer, introduce yourselves better than I ever could. I'm curious Wait, to see how Daddy, Daddy Warpig introduces us. Yeah, yeah. me too. <laughs> he, he's, he's my favorite introducer of things and people. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to do this kind of differently. Last night I was, uh, scrolling through on Facebook as is something I occasionally do. Um, and, uh, uh, I scrolled past, uh, a post, uh, by Cedar where she was talking about uh, an anthology that I had seen on Amazon and saying, you know, um, it was an anthology by a bunch of people I knew, uh, and many of which who I had read books by. Um, and she was saying how it had dropped off the radar of a lot of people. I'm like, oh, well, that's kind of sad. And then I was reading the comments underneath, and uh, another author that I knew, uh, who is in the chat, actually, Christopher Denote. And if I, uh, he said, well, why not get geek gab to you know invite you guys on and i'm like sure why not um and so we got it set up for today uh, cedar writes uh uh science fiction and fantasy uh i've read her urban fantasy novel which is uh pixie noir if i haven't mangled the title which i read um and I own the two sequels to it. Uh, they're in my Kindle library, and I have not read them yet. Um, <laughs> it's just fine. the truth. I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to lie. Um, I, uh, but I do have them, and I liked it. I thought it was a delightful novel. And uh, it is not, uh, unlike so many urban fantasy novels, a World of Darkness club. So, uh, which is uh, something that came up in a discussion on Facebook a couple of years ago, believe it or not. Um, so if you have a chance, please check out Pixie Noir and also please check out the uh, uh, anthology that will be part of today's discussion. Um, so I've known Cedar for, dude, I don't know how many years now, five, six? Something At least like that. that, yeah, because it was before about the time of sad puppies, so yeah. Um, and uh, Mr. Curtis, uh, who is S, that we call him Jim, um, which I promptly didn't, uh, <laughs> generally writes, uh, Mill SF, um, and it's absolutely possible I've read something by him but i honestly don't think so and so again i'm going to be honest and and say uh he was very polite uh before the show and i have not read anything by him but uh, i will go looking for something by him after the show and uh you'll probably want to start with his rim world series i've heard that name before yeah, that's my military science fiction series. 
I know I've heard that before. So, Cedar, how did he do? How did he do with writing military science fiction? Uh, Daddy Warpig. Oh, he did very well. <laughs> that was uh, that was more than adequate. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I I love it, especially as someone who is not a regular reader of military science fiction. This is going to be a special treat for me to learn more about you guys and your writing. Although I will say, let me share a little anecdote with you. I was I was looking over your website, cedarwrites.com, and looking at some of your other book covers. And so when trying to explain to my brother this morning, uh, who's on the show, uh, I said, all right, well, and I said, you know, she writes books about pixie snipers, I guess. <laughs> and you should have seen his eyes. His eyes got big. He's like, oh, yeah. I mean, let's do that. <laughs> I think you may already have a, a new reader. So that sounds like you saw the cover for East Witch, which is set in the same world as Pixie Noir, but different characters. And um, yeah, she winds up riding a moose with the wild hunt. So he will probably like it. Fantastic. <laughs> Not saying Cedar's a little twisted, but... <laughs> Right? Cedar grew up in Alaska. It leaves its mark on you. Well, I'd like to know more about that. And, and we can talk about the anthology, whatever else you guys want. But uh, I want to I dive deeper into that. Uh, so you do have an interesting or unique uh, point of view and background for your writing. So c can you tell us more about your Alaskan background or, or how that informs your books? Sure. And this actually kind of ties into the anthology as well. So um, my dad was in the military when I was a kid. He was in the um, Air Force. And that was that went on until I was about nine years old. And dad was never stationed overseas, but we moved with him from place to place. So by the time I was 18, I'd had 19 different addresses. Um, and after he'd gotten out of the Air Force when I was nine, we went to Alaska, where my mom's family is. And my mom's family has been up there since before Alaska was a state. So I kind of have a deep background up there, um, not only in having spent quite a few years living up there until I was in my late teens, but I still have family up there and, um, some of the stories that my grandfather and my uncles um, and cousins told me um, have definitely informed my fiction, as it were. And I write urban fantasy at times, but there's very little herb. <laughs> um, my friend Tom Knighton has referred to my fantasy as banjo fantasy because it tends to be set out in very rural environs. Um, so... Pixie Noir starts off in Alaska, and so does East Witch, because it's an easy setting for me, because it's a familiar setting, and a lot of people find it exotic. That's, uh, I love it, because when I think about Alaska, I think of, you know, vast tracts of wilderness and, you know, a few people in a cabin off on a hunting trip or a fishing trip or something like that. I also think of survivalists a little bit too. And, yeah, and I spent um, 
put pivotal points in my uh, childhood. So I joined the Civil Air Patrol when I was 11. And um, at that point, started training in um, wilderness survival and also search and rescue. And that continued through until I was 18. So that's definitely part of my books as well. But the military background, so the anthology is um, very military centric. And it is written partly from um, my own experiences with PTSD, but most of the authors have their own experiences with it as well, stemming from either military service or military adjacent. And because of my dad being um, military, the time that I spent with Civil Air Patrol and um, the book is dedicated to one of my cadets that went into the military and lost the battle with his demons um, a few years ago. And uh, he was my kid and we lost him. And there's, I can't, um, it's hard to wrap my head around how to do this quickly and easily. So the book is supposed to be to give hope um, where hope gets lost and you lose the path to go home again. So hence the title can't go home again. And uh, we had, when we first originally came up with it, um, Kristen Oates sent me a story um, that was set around Christmas. So it turned into a holiday anthology and uh yeah, that was kind of the genesis of it was Colonel Kristen Oates um, sent me a story and I asked him if he'd let me use it as a centerpiece for an anthology. Wow, that's a that's a great and sobering story. Can't Go Home is the name of it? Can't Go Home Again. Can't Go Home Again. Wow. Um, I don't know how to follow that up. That's beautiful. <laughs> Well, um, Jim might want to talk a little bit about the story that he wrote for it. Yeah, I can do that. Uh, it's kind of funny. I was watching the comments and noted that Emmett's father served on the PBRs in the Mekong during Vietnam. And that's actually what my story is about. He is a ensign who ends up in command of a PBR and loses a couple of his troops which was based on reality. Uh, and his way of resolving the PTSD with the help of his wife was to adopt two kids and name them for the two crewmen that died. Hmm. Uh, most of the stories are not easy to read. Uh, a lot of the comments and the reviews that we've gotten say that they're well worth it, but they're hard to read. And, you know, that's, that's kind of the point of it. PTSD is an interesting issue because it's not just combat vets, uh, fire EMS, uh, people that have been abused as children or as adults all have PTSD in some form or another. And the question is, how do you resolve that? You know, what is the way home? What is the way back to a stable environment? Right now, we're losing between 20 and 22 combat veterans a day 
to suicide. Mm. That's been going on since that I've been tracking it at least 2012, 2013. We have lost more vets to suicide than we ever lost in combat. And the same holds true for my generation. I'm an old fart. I'm 70 years old. So my career started with Vietnam and ended with the first Gulf War. I retired in 1992. So, and, and being in the Navy and being in aviation my entire career, my perspective is a little different because uh, I had probably 40 or 50 friends die in uh, various accidents in either operations or in training. And that's one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is that the training is as dangerous, if not more dangerous than the actual combat. Because one of the mantras of the military, at least used to be before the current set of administrations, is train like you're going to fight. And to do that for us, I flew long range patrol. It was six, eight, 10 hours at 200 feet over the water. Sometimes the airplane just never came back and you never knew what happened. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, Uh, that is, that is certainly something that, at least from my perspective, that's something that you don't recognize that we understand that the fighting is dangerous because the other guy gets a vote. But when you're doing operations out on the open water or in the air or something like that, or even training with, you know, live ammunition and explosives, it's just as dangerous, if not more so. Yeah. And that's what people tend to forget. Or, or, well, let me restate that. That's something that people tend to not realize. Uh, you know, for me, I'm a veteran, 20 plus years in military, half of it enlisted, half of it as a commissioned officer. Like I said, I went from Vietnam to the first Gulf War. So I've uh, seen it from a number of different perspectives, both as a lowly enlisted, you know, mushroom going, what the hell are we doing and why are we here? To being one of the guys that planned and executed the operations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, security is always an issue. And that's probably one of the harder things for junior enlisted, especially to deal with is why are we going back out today to do the same thing we did yesterday? And it's that constant repetition day in, day out, doing the same thing during Vietnam. The, I guess, classic case, if you want to call it, that was the Marines and, and the army troops that were helicoptered in to take a particular hill, fight all day to take the hill, suffer multiple casualties, and then be pulled out at dark and get sent back out the next day to do the same thing all over again. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, sounds really tough. Yeah. The PBR guys, uh, a couple of the guys that I worked with after I retired, I went back to work for the Navy were ex-PBR guys. Uh, A couple of the guys had been HMX-1 Marine pilots flying the president around. And we worked with a number of folks that were 
on what we call the green team at ONR that were active duty Marines coming right back from the field. So we, we had frontline knowledge and the things that we were doing and developing to try to protect the troops in the field was impacted by what we got back every day. And this also is why when I hear people talking about PTSD only being from combat, um, I mean, putting my own experience aside, the tempo of training is um, just as rough. Um, Dad was a Cold War vet. My husband was a Cold War vet. And they went through years knowing that, well, I mean, my husband was in the fall of the gap. Um, their life expectancy was measured in seconds after the Soviets started rolling. So that takes a toll. Yeah, it does. And Carlos made an interesting comment. We had a SEAL commander, the CO of uh, Team 8, die a couple of days ago in combat or in training. They were doing a fast rope exercise out of a helicopter off a Little Creek, Virginia. Something went wrong, and he's dead now. Yep. Gravity is unforgiving. Yes, it is. Um. And Chris also raised a good point in the chat that when you've been dealing with these issues as a leader and a commander, that's its own set of wear and tear as well because it eats at you because you wonder if something you said or something you had the crews do, you could have changed to keep them alive. It's a complex kind of survivor's guilt. Yeah, but it is survivor's guilt. You know, and that's something that we suffer from. Uh, the military changes you, period. Regardless of what anybody says, even when you go through boot camp or go through the academies, you come out a different person. You're not the same person that went in. What happens in those next years becomes an even bigger factor in affecting your life and where you end up going. You know, and, uh, as far as writing, I, uh, I was in a couple of different gun groups online. Uh, called the firing line and the high road. <clears throat> and we had a number of veterans. This was back in the day when uh, the there were good gun forums and realistic gun forums, unlike some of them out there that I won't name. And I, I smell an inside joke here. <laughs> uh, you know, there was, there was a lot of talk back and forth about reality versus, uh, you know, the dream world and the gaming world. Mm -hmm. I'll just be polite and leave it at that. But we started, things started bouncing back and forth with combat vets writing snippets and things like that. And the one thing that I hated was the fact that most movies and a lot of the books get the guns wrong. Mm -hmm. Secondly, that the characters are always freaking perfect characters. They never screw up. They never make a mistake. So I watched some other folks, Larry Korea among them, get published out of uh, 
this gun for him. I went, hell, I can do this. But I went a different way. I wrote my first series is a niche series because the guns are right and the characters aren't perfect. And it's basically urban fiction takes place in Texas. And it's cops versus the cartel down on the border with a grumpy old deputy sheriff and a few Marines thrown in for fun. Those are the gray man books. Yeah. yeah. And uh, <clears throat> I got challenged by a couple of people that I couldn't write military science fiction. So I wrote a little short story and it went number one for about five days and short stories and military science fiction. And I went, damn, now I got to write a series. <laughs> so I kind of took that and that was the impetus for RimWorld. And again, I'm not using perfect characters. And uh, based on what I did in the R&D world, it's pretty much hard science fiction. And then I just started a third series, which is an 1870s Western series. And again, all the guns are correct in that. And the horses. And the horses, yeah. <laughs> a, a funny aside there. There are, from all of my readers and the comments, there are three ways to get a wall book. You screw up the guns, you screw up the horses, or you screw up a character. That, now, that's, that. all right, this is really interesting to me because this is, uh, you put it the best, but I think that's a theme that I've noticed amongst the Mill SF writers and their fans is, you know, you, you want to have that detail and that accuracy because it's it's tough for you to enjoy the fiction, right? You can't suspend your disbelief when the guy doesn't even know how, you know, such and such rifle works. Yeah. Um, all readers, I think, are looking for a certain amount of verisimilitude. And <laughs> I sure hope I pronounced that correctly. You did. Uh, yes. All right. <laughs> so, so for someone like me who understands and is comfortable around guns but doesn't have a ton of experience using them, who, yeah. who you know, typical person who wouldn't be able to tell if it doesn't work, um, how do I put this? Someone like me wouldn't mind, right? Uh, someone like me would, and uh, I think this is a better example in characters. A lot of people want that sort of heroic, aspirational character, and that doesn't mean they have to be perfect. So um, I assume you have protagonists and, and or heroes, you know, whether they be war heroes or survivors or whatever. How do you... If, if you do it all, how do you balance that imperfection with, I want to make a protagonist or a character that the audience can truly root for and, and hope that they succeed? Well, part of that is a story arc where the character has room for development, either through leadership examples or personal actions and one of the things that I do is I tend to write what I call a try, 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 fail, try, fail, succeed, where the character is going to fail, but inevitably in the long term will succeed. The question is, what is the impact of that success on the character? 
the other thing too is that that gives you more conflict and more depth to your plot yes and that's that's part of the issue uh disabilities being another one i have purposely written characters with disabilities because disabilities are not necessarily a negative in some cases a disability can actually be a positive and uh i'm looking at raleigh or raw depending on how you want to pronounce that had some interesting comments about a work in progress where the main character is in junior rotc in a usa controlled by imperial japan so how is that youngster going to react when he goes to war that is going to be an interesting way to deal how he deals with that's going to be interesting because the ideology and especially the japanese ideology and i've spent a good bit of time in japan over the years is very interesting because to them service is everything they are not go ahead i was going to say dan carlin's um very lengthy take on the Pacific theater. He describes as the Japanese as being just like everyone else, only turned up to 11. Yes, that that is it. To them, it was acceptable to go forth and die. They didn't think anything about it. So how Rawl is going to handle that is going to be interesting, especially when you start trying to balance the U.S., mentality, which is survivorship, and the Japanese mentality, which is sacrificing your life for the good of the country. And his character is going to wind up broken at some point. Um, you don't do that kind of idealism and perfectionism, especially as a teenager, and then hit the realities of war without winding up with some cracks. Um, if not outright shattering. And that can be an interesting plot as well, is having your heroic, perfect character broken and then have to put them back together again. Yeah. Yes, Emmett, the Japanese are still like that today. They're still very service-oriented. Uh, I did a lot of research with uh, the Japanese Navy and the U.S. Navy while I was when I was doing my other job before I retired. And yes, they're still that way. They they will get the job done first. And I didn't mean to snag all the time, so somebody else has turned to talk. <laughs> I, I love it. I the insight that you have uh, is invaluable. As uh, just to talk a little bit about myself, which is one of my favorite things to talk about. I'm uh, I'm actually not much of a reader, so I. I'm just drinking from the fire hose here every time <laughs> someone like uh, you two come on to talk. Well, to build a little bit on what Jim was saying about disability um, and to bring it back to the anthology a little, the other thing that gets done wrong in books usually is recovery from an injury. Um, oh, and God. for that matter, movies. But in the anthology, we're talking about PTSD. So we're talking about recovery from mental um, injuries, um, what, what I've seen called psychic ailments. Um, 
and Daddy Warpig mentioned that he'd read Pixie Noir, but he hadn't read the rest of the trilogy. In the second book, in Trickster Noir, I start out with the main character being um, very badly injured. They expect him to die. And what I use to build that and build the mood, and I've had readers tell me that it was very difficult to read, was just that despair and unwillingness to be completely dependent on other people. And I pulled that directly out of conversations I've had with my father and my husband. It's one of the things that a, a real man um, does not do well with being completely dependent on others or the prospect of that for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know, even as a as a reasonably healthy middle aged man, that just that idea strikes home to me. Yeah. Let me, if I may, real quickly answer Emmett's uh, comment. He'd heard that many of the youth had checked out in Japan. Most of the Japanese carry two cell phones. They carry one to play games on and one to text on. And this is across the entire spectrum of age but you will almost never see them in a public setting talking on the phone. And this also goes back to the gaming world. Uh, world of War, some of the other games out there, and I'm not a gamer. I played enough war games for real. So I am the last person in the world to be any kind of expert on those things. But the thing with the war games is everybody always has the reset button because I died because I did something stupid. And they go right back and continue to do the same stupid thing all over again. Um, friends of mine were <clears throat> SEALs and they were training up for going back down range and had a couple of days off and got in a location where they had access <clears throat> to some PlayStations. So they decided just for S and G's to jump into one of the war games. And I don't remember which one it was. Might've been, anyway, it was a shooter game. So they went in and cleaned everybody's clock for about 24 hours and then disappeared. And from what I understand, a year and a half later, people were still trying to figure out who the hell they were <laughs> because they had used actual tactics. Another uh, movie worth watching, if you want to see reality, is called Act of Valor. And that does star actual seals. Um, I've seen it. Yeah. I, yeah. I bought it on iTunes. Do you know the background on that, Daddy Warpig? Is that the is that the one on the, about the attack on the train? Sorry, Daddy Warpig. No, although that's a good one, too. Uh, it's about... Um, uh, they're confronting Mexican uh, cartel members uh, or uh, terrorists who are being smuggled through by Mexican cartel members. Yeah. But do you know how that movie came about? Uh, I don't remember, I'll be honest. Okay, the game that it was supposed to be a commercial for was the Act of Valor game. And they had hired some actors out in L.A. to do some a basically an advertisement for the game. <clears throat> and 
and uh, invited a couple of seals to come up and kind of sanity check it. And uh, the actors couldn't get it right. So the producer asked the seals, <laughs> and this is hilarious, said, would you mind showing us how it's supposed to be done? So they did. And the producer went, uh, can you bring some more guys and can we film you? <laughs> and that grew into the movie Act of Valor. Every scenario in Act of Valor is based on an actual incident. The final death scene is Mikey Monsoor, who died downrange. Um, the takedown scene with the boats, uh, one of the kids that I mentored, who's a SWIC special boat service, was in that operation. And interestingly enough, the combat scene with the Mark 11 coming up the river was actual live fire. That was not CGI. <coughs> and oh boy. Yeah. It scared the hell out of the producer, the cameraman, and everybody else. Because they had never seen real weapons fired tactically. But the other fun part during the filming, I, I knew two of the guys that were in it, was that the cameramen were filming them with 35 millimeter cameras over their shoulder. And they had to keep telling them, no, no, stay back. Do not go over there. Stay right here. And <clears throat> the tactics are different depending on which level of entry you actually do. Plus they were actually dumbing things down to not give away current tactics. So that's the real story of how that movie came to be. But the guys in it, you know, they were all real. Uh, well, not all of them. There were eight of them that were actual SEALs. Everybody else was actors. But you can tell who the SEALs are because they're stiff and scared and not knowing what the hell they're doing on camera. Mm -hmm. well, I got to, I got to see that one with my dad. Um, and... Uh, dad's not a big movie person but he really enjoyed that it is a little campy in spots because they're not actors but it is definitely worth watching i love it um well let's run with that what what military movies would you recommend cedar oh gosh um so i don't actually have the military background so I can't watch like military movies with my husband or for that matter with my dad very much, but um, I enjoyed Saving Private Ryan. Um, I went to see 1917 with my son and he wanted me to go back and see it again. And I said, no, <laughs> once is enough. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so it's one of those things that I think the first military movie I can remember seeing and how the heck I managed to see it, I'm not sure, because I was too young for that high of a rated movie. It was Hamburger Hill. Um, and so I think I kind of imprinted on that kind of thing early, that it's not pretty war, um, which some of, the, some of the war movies are much more glam than the real thing was. So I think that that's probably what I would say is that the really good ones are the ones that are difficult to watch a second time. 
And uh, bringing it back to your writing and Jim's writing, which which movies and films are closest to what you produce? Oh, gosh. Um, so I don't actually watch a lot of movies. I grew up without television, Alaska, no electricity. Um, Sounds and- wonderful. <laughs> Well, this is why I'm a writer is because I was very much a reader and I read voraciously multiple books a day because I didn't have any other outlets. And um, like what Jim was talking about, the Japanese culture and having a phone to game on. And I see this with my son, who's all about um, video games and YouTube, and it's a struggle to get him to sit down and actually read So as a content producer, I'm sometimes looking at this going, I should probably try to figure out um, how to break out of just writing. But writing is how I I cope a lot with life. So um, as far as movies that would be like my stuff, I don't think there's anything out there that's remotely like um, the Pixie Noir series. I... uh, think that probably the closest thing to my Possum Creek Massacre, which is um, murder mystery and urban fantasy set in rural West Virginia, or not, well, West Virginia as well, but um, also Kentucky. So that's probably like justified with uh, with some strong fantasy magic elements in it. Oh, cool. That's quite a, quite a recommendation. <laughs> uh uh, that reminds me of the one um, the one thing I saw, and, and I have to get your reactions to this. Uh, I think the last one I saw that I really enjoyed was uh, 1917 and Hacksaw Ridge. Um, I wanted to get you, I actually want to know what Jim thought of, of Hacksaw Ridge because that was a that was a pretty good war movie I thought, but I imagine someone who lived it would roll their eyes at some of it. Yeah, there's always going to be the Hollywood aspect of it. Uh, the ones I would recommend are Band of Brothers, uh, Hacksaw Ridge, 1917. You know, those are excellent movies. They're pretty close. Uh, Saving Private Ryan. The one thing you never get with the movies, though, is you never get the smell. Mm. If you've ever been in combat, that smell sticks with you until the day you die. Wow. And that's, that is probably, thankfully, they never went with the smell of vision. <laughs> they were talking about it. Because if they had, everybody in the theater would have been puking. I, I can only imagine. Um, to answer Raul's comment about um, doing comics, I am actually doing comics a little bit uh, off the wall. Um, I am doing illustrated coloring books of law dogs, um, funny stories. Task Force Chewini is out there. And this is completely off what we've just been talking about because it's not at all serious. And I'm also working on illustrating his rattle saga Um so yes, I as an artist and an author, I am already doing some different things, but it's the video game and the uh, film that I'm not. I'm looking at those going, I don't even know how to break into that. Yeah, great. Uh, great shout out there, Roll. Thanks. 
Yeah, John De La Rose is, is probably gone the furthest as far as the comic side. Uh, I don't think I would ever get into that side of the side of the ledger, so to speak. Uh, none of my stories really lend themselves that much to comedy or to comic books. But, oh, comic books are not at all funny these days, though, Jim. Some of the graphic novels are very, very dark. Yeah, well, I realize that. <laughs> but it's kind of hard to compress, you know, a story into that little bit of space that you have for a graphic novel. I mean, the short stories, uh, the last one I did is called A Rifle, A Pistol, and A Good Horse. And it's 1870s Texas short story, well, novella. And uh, one of the things you try to do as a writer is you try to bring in the bits and pieces, the smells, the uh, senses to build the character's background to give you know, a little bit more meat to the uh, story, as it were. And yeah, Raleigh brings up Raul. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. Uh, Japanese manga. There are some interesting stories there. I have some friends that have gotten heavily into that side of the world uh, to mainly out of curiosity more than anything else. Hey, John. John actually piped in. Hi, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, the manga, the manga and the Korean light fiction, um, I know all of my kids read um, those as well as watching anime. And there is a very interesting depth and breadth of genre that um, is encompassed in those. Yeah. And then there's tentacle porn. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's its own thing. <laughs> Uh, all right, that's I have created a new list of things I did not expect to hear from 70-year-old veterans. Um, you need show. to hang out with more veterans. <laughs> I do. I really do. We may be old, but we've been around and seen a few things. <laughs> oh. oh, wow. Yeah, just, yeah. You just got to... You know, you think, you think after you've been around uh, veterans for a while, that it's the swearing that really shocks you about their sense of humor. And it's really not. Uh, there's a group of guys, I think it's Black Rifle Coffee, who makes these Halloween videos every year oh, yeah. that are these hilarious Halloween videos. And you, they don't swear in them. But the sense of humor is just so Black. <laughs> wrong. I mean, and oh and you realize watching these videos that it isn't, I mean, yes, the swearing is really bad. And, but it isn't the swearing that's the really bad stuff. It's just so wrong, the sense oh, of humor. And it is dark sense of humor. It's, uh, so yeah, if you... Uh, and I guess this is advice because a lot of people listen to the show are writers. I mean, we do a lot of shows that are 
about writing advice. We have a lot of writers on. So yeah, if you're writers, go look up those uh, Halloween videos. If you just want to get a sense for people who are in the military or have been in the military, if you want to get a sense of what their sense of humor is like, stripped of all of the, you know, really, really, really uh, over the top uh, vulgarity of the swearing and just get the, the humor itself uh and how twisted it is and how different from a civilian sense of humor it is those videos are a really good resource to just listen to the jokes oh, yeah. um it's that's it's something I, I can recommend yeah it's always very dark that's our our sense of humor is very morbid much like uh, fire police ems and that's part of it is a coping mechanism and I'm trying very hard not to cuss on the air. <laughs> I am a sailor. <sighs> yeah, I was going to suggest that uh, anybody that wants to get a glimpse into the dark humor, hang out with some first responders for a while. You'll get the vulgarity too, though. But oh, yeah. uh, my dad was in emergency medicine for 30 years, and I grew up hanging out with first responders. So I, I definitely get it. Um, and to segue back into the anthology, um, not just because that's what I was here to talk about, but because it's kind of pertinent. It's a coping mechanism and it's often misunderstood. Um, and that's one of the things that we wanted to model in these stories were coping mechanisms and not always the obvious um, socially acceptable ones because yeah, you have to be able to get on in society, but sometimes you need to be able to hang out with people that understand you and uh sometimes understand that the sense of humor is going to be twisted <laughs> well it's it's a combination of twisted and the uh language you know and in the navy not so much the air force but the navy marines and army the f word is pretty much punctuation adjective adverb Verb, you know, <laughs> it, it can perform all parts of speech for sure. Yes, yes. <laughs> I actually There's hung a... a hung a lantern on it in the story that I have in the anthology Battle Mother. I have the character trying not to swear as she's talking to a psychologist, um, and ultimately failing and finally getting comfortable enough with him to swear in front of him, um, because I knew that that is a part of how the real thing works. There is a uh, meme of Stalin talking. And uh, what Stalin says is, black humor is like food. Not everybody gets it. Ooh. <laughs> uh, oh. oh, one of my favorites. Oh, that one hits a little close to home. <clears throat> yes, yeah. but most black humor does hit close to home. Yeah. Yeah, Emmett's right. The language is a steam, is a pressure valve, pressure relief valve. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that that's a really good point. Even the normal stresses of life, I'm uh, I'm the type of person who needs to vent emotions. Yeah. Uh, I I can't I can't just bottle it up, and we all have our own ways of doing that. Um, no, compartmentalization <laughs> is not healthy. No. 
No, but that's what most veterans and others do is compartmentalize to a maximum extent. Oh, I'm very aware. <laughs> yeah, Chris pointed out Vet TV is another good one, especially for authors if you want to get a backstory type uh, set of dialogues and our information and our view what it's like to be a vet. Those guys do a very good job. What, one of the things, um, one of the things I've noticed about writers is when you've started to get an idea about something, but you don't quite know it. It may be a world you've created, or it may be, uh, you know, you're learning about guns, or it may be, you know, you're learning about military life or whatever, and you haven't quite gotten it yet. What they tend to do is to throw all the details in because they're they're not really comfortable with it yet and they're trying to wallpaper over their their ignorance with lots and lots of the details that they already know um so one of the things that vet tv and other things like that are really helpful for is really repetition of a lot of different things can help that sink into your head so it kind of becomes second nature so you don't have to think about it and then you don't have to worry about it and then you can just write and you don't have to put a ton of details in because the details you put in will be uh not perfect uh, and you'll still want to get some commentary or uh you know alpha readers beta readers whatever from people who know but it'll be good enough accurate enough for people to to understand and you don't have to wallpaper it with a ton of details so um i recommend that to anyone who's looking at writing something that they are uncomfortable with or that they don't naturally know like for me if i was writing about alaska i'd have to learn a lot about alaska and then learn a lot about it over enough period of time to where i became comfortable with it instead of just throwing a ton of details in and hoping that that convinced the audience that I knew what I was talking about, even when I was clearly uh, uncomfortable with it. Yeah, yeah, and the other thing too is that you want to um, research from more than one pool of sources. Um, because like with Alaska, there's a bunch of TV shows that have come out recently. And um, I haven't seen most of them, but I have heard the comments that my family that lives up there makes enough to know that none of them are realistic. So if somebody were going to write about Alaska and then they went to watch these TV shows, Ice Road Trekkers, or I can't remember what they all are, but that would be a very bad way to research the real Alaska. Yeah, the... Uh... If you're looking at Hollywood or Wikipedia or any of those for facts, uh, you're going to be sadly mistaken because they're not going to be there. They're not going to be correct. Uh, what you say is interesting, Daddy, and I think most, well, I know I'm, I'm more of a storyteller than I am a writer, so I tend to not put a lot of detail in my stories because I expect the reader to build their own view, if you will, of the character, the character's makeup, and the scenarios. But the problem becomes when you, 
send your book out to your alpha readers and you get a comment back from a 70 year old lady that goes, that character does not have a mustache. And you send back, go, yes, ma'am. And you change the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's now, awesome. Chris, Chris brings up another good point. Compartmentalization. The problem is you can't turn it off. And that's many years ago, we had a uh, Navy captain down at NAMI, Naval Aerospace Medical, that did about a four-year study on naval aviators and compartmentalization. And he called the study Sex in the Naval Aviator because he figured that was the only way he could get us to pay attention. <laughs> but what he did was he interviewed over a thousand aviators about how they compartmentalized things that they had to do, how to fly the airplane, the family deployment, you know, in all these boxes, so to speak, that we've stuffed stuff in, in the back of our heads and then lock it away. Some of it to be pulled out exactly when you need it. But the problem being that you couldn't always pull it out when you needed it. Because if you had another box open, that was going to take priority. And it was a really interesting study, quite a, quite a long study. But the problem really came down to the fact that compartmentalization works for certain things, and it does not work for others. The highest death rate among the military was when, especially in aviators, was when they were going through a divorce or the death of a parent, a wife, or a sibling, or a child. Because that just overrode everything else, and you couldn't get another compartment open to do your job. Mm. Well, that's hard. And, uh, you know, speaking as someone who's lived a normal human life so far, I can say it, that applies to everybody. It really does. Um, I was just saying in our, our private chat, we're, we are closing in on the end of regulation. We don't have to stop here, but now's the time for any last questions or stories or, or comments you may have. Uh, Daddy Warpig, I want to start with you. Uh, do you have any more questions for Cedar and Jim? Uh, no, I, I, I grew up in the military. Um, but, well, I grew up around the military. I was a, I was a, you know, army brat. Uh, and uh, I grew up in Germany, uh, about 35 miles from the Czech border. Um, uh, my dad was in the cab for four years and then the armor for four years in while we were in Germany. Um, and even with all of my early life being around the military. Um, you know, my dad got me a, I ate sea rations for fun when dad brought extras back from uh, maneuvers. Uh, I was in Germany for forger um, after, uh, you know, this is, I was in Germany in the army right after the end of the Vietnam War, right after the fall of Saigon. Um, and so we would go out and see tanks maneuvering across um, farmers' fields. 
and we've got pictures of A-10s uh, flying in the sky, uh, engaging tanks. Um, and my dad would bring bring us playing cards that were uh, with silhouettes of Soviet vehicles on them to teach soldiers to recognize a BTR and a BMP and and uh, jets and helicopters and so forth. Um, and so you would think that I'd feel comfortable around the military and about writing out the military. And, and the thing is, even growing up as a kid in and around the military, it doesn't give you a whole lot of insight as to what being in the military is like, as what being a soldier is like. And so if I was to write a character of a soldier, um, I would still go and do research on uh, you know, the experiences of soldiers. And fortunately, there are a lot of books that are biographies or autobiographies of soldiers who talk about um, what their particular time in the military was like. And you can get books from uh, all kinds of different specialties. You can get books from infantry soldiers. You can get books from, um, you know, special operations. You can get books from um, different wars. You can get books from Afghanistan, Iraq, and also uh, Vietnam, the Gulf War, uh, whatever you want to look at as far as the time frame goes. Um, Studs Terkel, uh, I, I hear his World War II book where he interviewed a bunch of soldiers uh, is uh, really good. And so looking at it what you want to do is find people describing what their experiences were like subjectively so that even if you have never been to war and if even if you've never been in the military you can get as close as you can to writing um and i'm going to come back to verisimilitude as close as you can to writing soldiers that feel real and don't feel self-conscious that you'll never get them exactly right. You won't get them exactly right. And it doesn't matter because I'm going to quote a soldier here, um, specifically your boy, Zach, uh, um, who said, you know, he served in the Army and the Marines uh, in Afghanistan um, for three tours. And he said, look, his experience in the military was very different from people who even served in the same branches, even served in the same war, even served at the same time he did. They had different experiences. And so what he could tell you what being in the military is like, it's gonna be different what someone else would tell you what being in the military is like, who had all those things in common with him. And they would, someone who was served on PBRs in Vietnam, what they would tell you being in the military was like, is gonna be completely different. So. Don't have to be panic stricken. Brandon Sanderson said at one point that he was afraid to write stories with horses because he was afraid that all the horse people would jump on him for getting horses wrong. 
don't do that. Don't do that with respect to guns. Don't do that with respect to writing soldiers. Don't do that with respect to writing anything. Do the best you can. Get some comments on it from people who know, if you can, if you know those kind of people. Do your research if you feel like, you know, you need to be better educated. Do the best you can and move on. Don't worry about it. Um, that, that would be my advice for writers. Do the best you can and move on. Don't worry about it. You weren't in the military, but then again, nobody in the military has worn powered armor and jumped out of a spacecraft, okay? None of them have. None of them have that experience. None that of them know knows of. what it's like to go through a warp drive into another system and fight giant uh, spider aliens. None of them have done that. We're all making this up. So do your best and past a certain point, don't worry about it. That's, that's what I wanted to say. It is said, behold, the Warpig rant of the day. <laughs> I would say um, that's pretty dead on the money. The best part about the internet is you have all these great communities that you can interact with. And sometimes you find the bad gun for them and sometimes you find the good gun for them. Uh, Jim, do you have any last thoughts or comments or anything that we should know about you? Or I mean, I, I could listen to war stories all day, but well, let's just do that. Well, I would say two things. One is basically, regardless of what branch of the military <clears throat> or what sub-branch you're in in the particular military, it's going to be two things. Well, three things, actually. You're going to stand in line for fucking forever. You're going to be bored off your butt for 90% of the time. And there are going to be moments of sheer freaking terror. Regardless of what branch, what sub-branch you're in, it's going to be those three things. And it, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I'm an old broke vet, so I've got, I'm disabled. So I go to the VA and I interact with guys my age, sometimes older, that are vets of other services. And there is always hate and discontent between the services. Always has been, always will be. It's all in fun. Mm -hmm. Contrary to how loud and obnoxious it sometimes gets, it's all in fun. But I do have to uh, relate one story about Oklahoma City VA Hospital. We had to go up there and get our shots. And we were told to go sit for 30 minutes to see if we were going to fall over dead. And they sent this young lady in to monitor us. And after about 15 minutes, she got up and ran out the door. And we're all kind of looking around going, what the hell happened here? And this doctor comes in and goes, what in the hell did you some bitches do to her? <laughs> and we went, nothing. We weren't even talking to her. <laughs> Apparently, she thought we were going to get physically in fights in the waiting room. <laughs> oh, my goodness. 
Yeah. So, a real a real student of uh, male bonding she was. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I thank you all for having me on. I hope uh, that you all enjoy. I want to say enjoy the stories, but we'll take the time to read the book, read the stories. And if you have veterans that are friends, you have people with PTSD that are friends, give them a copy. Be there for them because that helping hand is sometimes going to be the one thing that keeps those people alive. And on that, I'm going to say, beat Army, go Navy, because the game's fixing to come on, and I'm going to go watch it. <laughs> go Navy. See you and there. I have a Blackberry Cobbler for you, Jim. Yay! <laughs> so thank you all for having us on. Um, to kind of tag on to what he was just talking about, I, in my life, with when I was in some very dark places, found hope in fiction. And that's kind of what I was hoping for with this anthology, was that um, in one of these stories, someone might find a kernel of hope that helps them hang on just that little bit longer. I'm so glad that you guys came on, and I'm more than happy to spread that message and that word. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, special thanks to you, Cedar and Jim, for coming on. That was great. Uh, I didn't do shout-outs in the chat, but we've been uh, we've been engaging all day. Uh, appreciate the guests bringing those in. Um, uh, it's great to see everybody live in chat. Don't forget to miss it. We'll probably be back next year. Uh, I hope everybody listening later really enjoyed the conversation and uh, goes and picks up that book. Uh, I do want to plug your website is at cedarwrites.com and you can get the anthology on Amazon. Can't go home again. Uh, uh, links to both are in the description of the video. You got it. Uh, that's it for me. Uh, I've had a wonderful time, an hour well spent, as I always say. And uh, I'd also like to thank my inimitable uh, co-host, Daddy Warpig, who may now send us away. All right. Thanks, everybody, for showing up in the chat. Um, thanks to our special guests, Cedar and JL Curtis. Also, thanks to uh, John Delarose, who was inadvertently summoned by mentioning his name three times. So... We may have to keep that in mind if you don't want to conjure him out of the ether. And uh, also thanks to Christopher Denote, uh, who also wrote a story for the um, anthology, I believe, for showing up and participating in the chat. Uh, we want to thank everybody who listened live. Thank everybody who will listen later. Remember, folks, we are here just about every week, not counting for the rest of the year, uh, just about the same time. Uh, on youtube.com slash geekgab. That's youtube.com slash geekgab. Or you can catch us on the iTunes store, Google Play Store, or soundcloud.com. Listen to us on the device of your choice. We are signing out for today, but don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.